Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful once again for the time in your word. We'd ask that you would uh, bless our time in it. Um, we're eager to go over passages we've read before and read before, but Lord, we are always blessed by what we see. In your son's name, amen. Well, we finish up the first epistle of St. Peter this week. This is the last bit, chapter, end of chapter 3 through chapter 5. Um, and the next two weeks, we'll be doing Second uh, Peter in two weeks. So he's been talking about <clears throat> the kind of behavior that is expected of Christians in unpleasant circumstances, because not only persecutorial circumstances, but just circumstances where the people in charge of your life are not on your side. Bad masters, bad husbands, bad governments. And the recommendation is you do what's right, you take it patiently, if they punish you unjustly, Christ is our example in this. And he's continuing along those lines. Now who is there to harm you? This is verse 13 of chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? Now if, when we, we forget sometimes that it's not merely difference, we're not saying because there's this diverse opinion that Christians hold, non-Christians don't like, we fail to realize that the Christians are there doing good in the society. They're being good slaves and being good wives and being good citizens. Their reverence in those situations, uh, zealously carried out, for the most part, produces good response. Like, a, a, I think in Romans 13, he says that, that uh, do you not want to be harmed? You do what's right. You know, the, the, the governments are really there wanting to have people like you doing good things in their many societies. Um, it suggests that with the non-Christian husband, that he's going to be won by it. Um, that there is this uh, compelling good. At some point, though, that can have uh, the negative reaction from the ungodly. Um, Christ was always causing people to marvel at his teaching. They're just like, wow, what unusual goodness this is. Eventually that will tread on people's claims of power and, and um, them losing, them not getting what they want. Verse 14, but even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. It's not a promise that you would not be harmed. But being zealous for doing what's right, being reverent in your relationships to authority, um, uh, is going to lift a certain burden. But if they go ahead and harm you anyway, there is a blessing in it. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. Now, uh, where's my Bible? Here it is. There. It's like a reference to Luke 12 in, on, in the margins. Uh, Luke 12 is that passage that uh, uh, 
Christ says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, we are told to have it clear in our heads what authority do we truly kneel before. Uh, when it mentions that in Ecclesiastes about uh, oppression, I always misquote it. Uh, it's one of my most oft-quoted uh, passages. Where is it? Um, it has to do with uh, when you see um, evil going on in the world, don't be amazed at the matter. Um, but um, uh, realize that every official is watched by a higher official. And, oh, here it is, it's in 5. If you see in a province the poor oppressed and justice and right violently taken away, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But in all, a king is an advantage to a land with cultivated fields. The principle is the same. We are not to be amazed at the matter when we see oppression and, and things are right violently taken away. Um, because we know that all authority moves up the chain. I am not the judge. That the, the, real, the real transition for the Christian here in Peter is that I am not the judge. My anger, my shaking my fist at my boss for beating me unjustly is not the biblical cosmology. The biblical cosmology says reverence Christ as Lord. Christ says, fear me more than you fear people who can kill you. And that deference of have no fear of them nor be troubled is relieved not because you've taken on the task of defeating them, but because you know the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them, and you're all the way up to God. And eventually, Christ, like on the cross and earlier in Peter, he trusted to him who judges justly. Now, Always be prepared. We tend to try to figure out how to create defense mechanisms or keep the Christian community from being, um, you know, uh, abused or, or, or you know, uh, get into bad situations from authorities. Uh, that's not supposed to concern us as much. That's that's you know, you can have a minimal amount of objection and and make your case before the uh, magistrate. But here, it's always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. These are, these are arguments that you are ready with, knowing that you're going to get dragged in because of what you believe, if you're one of those who's being persecuted for the belief. Because you're not getting persecuted for being a lousy worker because you are a reverent, capable wife, or slave, or citizen, and you've given out your all to the, to the good of the, the, 
your overlords, they're going to be objecting to you on the basis of what you believe. So be prepared to defend that. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. You know, you're supposed to have a... Still maintain... The, the idea of maintaining the hierarchical respect is is one of the clearer spots in the New Testament because it's presuming bad and abusive and unjust overlords. And you're supposed to respect, reverence, and keep your conscience clear so that when you're abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. How do we put them to shame? We do not outwit them in the law courts. We do not, you know... Um, counter-sue, we make them realize, I had a phone call the other day where someone had a problem with a, a rental situation and the renter was a, uh, the property owner was a lesbian and, and all sorts of false accusations about what they had done to the place, it wasn't true, wrote bad reviews of them as renters online, which will affect future rental situations and it was unjust and it was just mean and it was un it was un irrational and it was just all sorts of things well saying well think about this person's a bad person who's reacting in a bad way because they're bad people and our opportunity is to offer yourself to that person to do good to that cursing blessing how are you going to make them feel and don't try to write up a blessing that somehow gets your digs in, you know, about what they did wrong to you. Where you say, yeah, I know you wrote a bad review of me online, but I'm going to overlook that. You don't get to announce you're good that way. You just get to be good to the person. Maybe even offer to talk to them if they're kind of feeling, you know, bitchy about life. You want to keep your conscience clear. You want to have your good behavior in Christ be a powerful thing that even if they kill you at the end of it, they're left with that more powerful uh, judgment. Um, what Christ is on the cross and the Roman and the things he says on the cross are just so gracious and the Roman centurion says, surely this man is the son of God. You know, there is this, there's a power to what we, uh, how we react in these situations. For it is better to suffer for doing right, verse 17, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. We sometimes think, there, you know, well, no, it's better to suffer for doing wrong, right? Because that's what wrongdoing deserves. It's wrong to suffer for doing right. He's saying, no, it is better to suffer for doing right. It's sort of an odd statement. We're used to it going by our eyes, but, but we have to be of the mindset that says, that should be the only option for Christians. If you suffer, it should only be for right. It should never be for wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, and this is, I want you to start thinking about this as we be going through past verse uh, 18 here. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Odd verse, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Now, this whole thing comes out of earlier part in chapter 3, where Christ is our example, 2 and 3 how he died, how we should live, how we should suffer with him, or how we should look at our suffering. But there's so many there's some weird things in here. One is preaching to the spirits in prison um, from the days of Noah. Why those people, those spirits? And baptism now saves you. That's another... Um, difficult circumstance. Now, let's clear some of this up. It seems that Peter, and just to put this out there, but that Peter is dealing with the behavior of the antediluvian angels. Antediluvian meaning before the flood. Deluge, ante, before. Um, because in Second Peter, I have in the side column, for God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. Um, uh, and then in Jude, which Jude and Peter track real close together, but the angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day. The Jude passage is clearly about the angels who sinned before the flood, who married the daughters of men. Okay? Produced the Nephilim, produced the wickedness in the world at the time that brought on the flood. Peter seems to be fully cognizant of that situation, which would explain why it was the group of spirits when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That it might not be people he's talking about. It says spirits in prison, and uh, which is Lewis's non-Christian first published, second published uh, bit of poetry that he put out before he was a Christian. It was called Spirits in Bondage. From the, um, these, this, the King James's Spirits in Bondage. Um, that has nothing to do with the... It just struck me. Um, so, preaching for, what, for some reason, we'll get to it later in the passage tonight, for some reason, Christ after his death, descends into Hades and preaches something to those spirits who are probably either the Nephilim spirits, the half-agents, the, 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 the demigods, or the angels who formerly did not obey. Um, and then he says, you can take that as you will, we'll get to it a little bit later in, in chapter 4 as well. Baptism, which corresponds to this, Naturally, when you talk about the flood, right before that, eight persons were saved through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, simply on the surface of it, you would just say, actually, it's not the baptism that's conferring grace or saving you, it's the appeal to God. Obviously, the dipping someone in water is not doing anything that uh, is clear, um, but it doesn't wash you in some way uh, to prepare you for God. You are using it as your prayer. It's, it is used as an appeal. Now, that very well may be. That's just on the surface of it. And it's not through the baptism, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am explicitly not going, Lord, have this baptism cleanse me. It is, Lord, I am being cleansed due to your resurrection. I am using this ritual to ask for that through that powerful thing, your death and resurrection. Now, but what's interesting to me as I looked at this, starting back with verse 18, um, it could be that the baptism is corresponding to the water, still either way, but that this was part of a gospel statement about what Christ did. Christ died for sins, verse 18, righteous for unrighteous, death of the flesh, alive in the spirit, descending into hell. Priest to these flood um, individuals uh, previous to the flood where, where only a few people were saved through the flood, uh, eight people, and uh, then in the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then his ascension, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. There's this, this section that is about the work of Christ on the cross and our participation in it, uh, you might say uh, just a moment in baptism, um, that if it's water baptism, it probably is, you know, it's water, the flood, baptism is not specified to be water, uh, but since he declines to say it's a removal of dirt from the body, it's an appeal, it's probably what people would naturally think is a washing uh, situation. So I would grant, grant that, but I think that there is more of, you know, our baptism standing in a place in our uh, joining Christ in this work of Christ. You know, we, we, I have a passage here in Colossians, um, here on the side, Colossians 2. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised you from the dead. Other images include that the baptism is not just the water, it's the death. This whole image that Christ dying for sins and going down to Hades and then being raised and it could be that the baptism corresponds to the whole thing, not just the flood water. That the baptism is us dying with Christ. Well, in Baptist churches, it's usually you're d died with him and being raised with him as part of the symbolism in the baptism, in the immersion. Um, but uh, a, a bit more, uh, take a look at it as you have, have a chance. When it says baptism, which corresponds to this, 
what is the this? Because we naturally think water baptism and see the water in the previous verse, we naturally go, okay, that's the correspondence. Noah's flood and our baptism. Rather than saying, if I look at Colossians, baptism corresponds to more of this story from verse 18 on. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where I participate, um, uh, my baptism represents all of that still, only as a symbol, it still isn't doing the cleaning. What's doing the cleaning is the appeal to God for a clear conscience. Uh, God's doing the cleaning. I am making my appeal in this act. But I'm just thinking that the baptism may be corresponding to more of this story than just the water and the flood. But you could give that a consideration. Chapter 1 of, I mean, chapter, first 1 of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same thought. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. Now, once again, it's a, it's a, conv, it's a little bit convoluted as a sentence, because it doesn't really tell you whether or not the suffering in the flesh is coming on you because... Uh, you might say, an honor or a glory to you because of your righteousness. You are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, so the ceasing from sin may be caused it, or that it's a promise that if you suffer unto death your past sin at that point, if you've suffered in the flesh, since Christ suffered in the flesh, that was unto death. If you have suffered the flesh, you have ceased from sin. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking it, it's part of a continuum because it says, so as to live for the rest of the time, I'm supposed to arm myself with this thought um, about um, however you're going to take that. I, it's not clear enough to tell us what is the suffering in the flesh and ceasing from sin referencing to but I arm myself with that commonality to cause me to not be a passionate liver, but a will of God liver. I live what I have in the flesh by the will of God, not by my passions. Um, let the time pass for, let the time that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness. Passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. You can tell what he's referring to when he's talking about human passions, because human passions, given, given free reign, this is what they produce. They produce it now up on campus. They produce it in Lewiston on Friday night. They produce it in ancient Rome. Uh, people will live by their passions, and that's what they'll do. They'll drink, they'll whore around, and they will worship false gods. Um, there is a there is a way of thinking about hierarchies, a way of thinking about motivation in life. There's a way that I choose between passions and sobriety to live a certain way out of blending myself with Christ-likeness. Christ went through the most 
you might say, the most exquisite life and then the most exquisite torture for being that exquisite mind and life. He was not, he was at parties, he was with non-believers, he seemed to enjoy things, um, but he wasn't um, like that and uh, got him killed. And like here, like with Christ, they are surprised that you do not join them, join them in the same wild profligacy, and they abuse you. That's what. Um, that's what. That's what makes me think that the suffering in the flesh has ceased from sin. That as I cease from sin, I will suffer in the flesh. Uh, it says in Timothy somewhere that anyone who desires. Uh, to serve Christ will be persecuted. You know, it's you get to a certain point. If you're living the righteous life, people will say, you know, in a sane society, to only be able to ruin your reputation, or say bad things about you, or gossip, uh, maybe even destroy some of your business plans, or keep you from succeeding. Whatever it is, they don't like the fact that you don't live that way. And we are armed by that thought that my righteousness, which I value, I don't have value being persecuted. There's some groups like the Montanists and like who actually valued the persecution, and so they tried to cause the persecution. Um, they were measuring themselves by, you know, being tortured and killed, rather than saying, no, we're measuring ourselves by righteousness because my, I'm armed with the thought to live by the will of God because I'm fully expecting this to occur. If I, if, I, if I love righteousness, this is what happens. If I love Christ, this, my imaging of Jesus Christ, will have, because he was, it says, arm yourselves with the same thought. They abuse you, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, that reminds us of the example that he talked about earlier in, in Peter, where he said that, that Christ was our example at the end of chapter 2. He trusted to him who judges justly. I'm being told that this is what's going to happen. If I, if I follow Christ, if I understand the nature of things, if I understand that I'm offering goodness into the society, but that goodness produces this reaction... I fully expect it, and I know that the judge of all things will judge them. They will have to give an account to him. I'm not taking this on as a fight for me. I'm not, I'm not stepping into it like I want to get hit, but I also know it could very easily happen, and I fully expect it, and I'm not trying to remedy it, because remedying it is not my job. They will be judged on the last day. For this is why, and this is another odd verse, and this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead. Well, given that it was just a paragraph earlier that Christ descended into Hades and preached to the spirits in prison, there are some people who say back in chapter 3 that the preaching is not the word used, it's more the word for declaration and, and he is telling the dead that this is what just happened. Well, yeah, that would work if it was just chapter 3. 
chapter 4 says, the gospel was preached to the dead. That though judged in the flesh like man, they might live in the spirit like God. That doesn't help us. But if I take the notion that he's talking about, for some reason, the immediately antediluvian, spiritually mixed up beings, half-breeds, of the Nephilim or, or whomever, the Titan giants. This makes some sense. It says, though judged in the flesh like men, they might live in the spirit like God. I have Psalm 82 here. You might wonder why Psalm 82 was stuck in there. Because it's one that Jesus Christ quotes at one point. He says, uh, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Uh, he quotes that. Um, but the first verse is, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So he's, he's judgment of the gods, and then he says, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like men and fall like any prince. So, you know, most evangelicals think this verse is about really the mighty and the human rulers and stuff. The word is gods. Um, when Jesus Christ quotes it in the New Testament, the, the word for the gods, Elohim, is changed into theos, which is gods. <laughs> so it, 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 you could make it, I think they're talking about something else, but, but Christ wants to make the point that he even tells the Jews, if the writer of the scriptures had called those who it was addressed to gods, you know, why do you object to me calling myself the son of God? You know, um, um, uh, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, wh whatever you want to do with that, it seems that whatever the punishment was for these beings who were between man and angel, man and gods, or if it was them and not the fallen angels, I'm not, it's not really clear, um, that they died and were imprisoned in the nether gloom, and Christ went and spoke to them and preached to them the gospel because since they died like men, they were had an opportunity to live in the spirit like God. In other words, that it was a grace that that was given them that because of their special circumstance. That's all I can do with it. Um, otherwise, um, um, I think we're, we're sort of trapped by it. The, things, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, keep sane and sober for your prayers. Above all, hold unfailing love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. As each has received a gift, employ it for one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who utters oracles of God. Whoever renders service is one who renders it by the strength which God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I read that all together. Um... But um, uh, the descriptions, if you were to jot down what you would call 
the description of a Christian community that you would see as being obedient. Um, Lewis talked about it last night in her Christianity on social morality of what kind of world would we be in if we all applied Christian ethics in this situation. You know, he, he described the various changes that would go on in the society. Not going to happen, he realized. He knew that everybody would have to become Christians for it to happen. But we have become Christians. We are able to be sane and sober for our prayers. Not ecstatic and Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross, not mystic fits, not, not uh, sane and sober. Not irrational, not puffed up without reason. Um, it warns us against that. Uh, what, what we just talked about um, in about the angels. Boy, you tell some crowds that, and they just they just they get excited, they get breathless, they start fanning themselves because it's angels and, and 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 weird visionary things, and they start because they want that kind of excitement jolt in their life. They want the excitement to of knowing that angels are breeding with earthly women um, and getting into trouble and Jesus went and did this and that. And it says, basing, you know, worshiping angels, basing your faith on visions, puffed up without reason by your sensuous minds, those are inappropriate for the Christian life. We're not that kind. We're good citizens who participate and serve our masters, even the ungodly ones, well. We take our licks even if we don't deserve it, knowing that everything will come right in the end, and this is in this we are like Christ. And we want to keep this sanity you know, normal for us so that our prayers, our union with God would not be um, sidetracked. Now, I, in, I didn't use any red other than here. You notice it says one another, one another, one another. Often people are always talking about, you know, when you go out, you, you get the guy who can't pay you back, the poor man, the, uh, the stranger, the sojourner. That's good. There, there are biblical ethics that drive that. Um, but this is a biblical ethic that drives the unity of the saints. Unfailing love for one another. Hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. Okay? That, that, the, that the, the company of the saints has a, and a special rank with each other. That we have certain presumed common gifts. One is love and one is ungrudging hospitality. That our lives be held together out of that, that membership that we have should at least be expressed commonly in those ways. Love is common and hospitality is common. Everyone has a house. Everybody is able to include others in the whatever good they have in their life that is common to human existence. Certain things are varied in the church. As each has received a gift, employ it for one another. So it's still the one another, but there's that suddenly it goes, hey, common stuff, everybody's got a house, everybody's got love. Okay, everybody gives love and hospitality to each other, ungrudgingly. Uh, but you've got a gift to this and he's got a gift to that. Well, use that. Employ it for one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You will have differences. And you're responsible to pick up what you've got and give it. It gives two examples. Preachers, 
and those who who render service to the church. Preachers, they need to be conscious that they're uttering the oracles of God. I've heard this misinterpreted just as a quick warning. Don't do this. Don't think this. It was a pastor telling a congregation that they should view the pastor's words as the oracles of God. As much as I like the sound of my voice, and as much as we jokingly refer to me as the oracle, um, don't ever do that. It is not saying that. It's telling the pastor to treat what he's doing, his belief, his faith. This is the oracle of God. I am just this is Peter the Apostle. We're just going, here's Peter the Apostle. These are the words of God, inspired scripture. We're passing them on to you. That's what his varied grace, the pastor's varied grace, is supposed to be, be employed doing, teaching the oracles of God with that kind of valuation of the thing he is doing. When you start teaching current psychology or sociology or just self-help programs, whatever it is, if you stop teaching the scriptures, um, you've missed the point. You might be a good communicator, but you've missed the point. Those who render service as one who renders it by the strength which God supplies. Now there's probably all, you could come up with all sorts of aspects of the varied gifts. He does not claim to be listing them all, as each has received a gift. So you could come up, and they're not even saying that those are the central point of those particular gifts, the teacher or the server, the, the, the diaconate. Um, but there are areas where there could be a stumbling, obviously, uh, not reverencing the word of God on the part of a pastor. You see though, as they liberalize and become more less and less convinced that, that they have to believe it, um, they're not, no longer uttering the oracles of God. And those who are in service suddenly start to feel the weight of, of no one ever recognizing it. All that work, none of the credit. All that work, no, no relief. Here it is, rendering it by the strength which God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Again, we're not to be glorified. This, the, for the pastor, the text is to be glorified. For the wandering service, no, you're not to be glorified either. It's that, that all these good things that God has given us would be to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Now, in, uh, uh, although he said amen there, that wasn't the end of the book. The other side of the page still has 15, 20 minutes on it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. And so this whole book has been, from the outset, hey, watch out, stuff's going to happen. Don't be surprised. This is not strange. This is, might be tragic, it might be painful. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I've got two instructions to rejoice. One is to rejoice that I share so that I can rejoice when the revelation of his glory happens. That somehow I would be out of step, somehow, with the rejoicing when his glory is revealed, when if I didn't rejoice when 
it was happening. Uh, I have that passage in Acts 5. It's one of my, sort of my go-to when this thought comes across um, the um, Acts 5, 40 and 42 and the, the apostles had been beaten. So they took his advice, this is Gamaliel, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the cross. That's the, that's the example. Rejoice that you share Christ's sufferings, that you got this honor of being able, that, that you stepping away from the way the world does something sinfully, had changed you enough that you have, remember, you're doing two things. I'm not becoming so religious and wild-eyed that somebody wants to smack me. I am a good citizen. That's what you want to be, the perfect citizen. Parking where you're supposed to park, paying your taxes, being a good worker, and just not acting like the world, acting like a Christian, sane and sober. And um, then you can take a satisfaction. Then there's a rejoicing because it came to prove you. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If it gets to that point, not if somebody, again, reproaches you for being a jerk or or, or being in their face about the gospel. They can't really single out, you know, uh, that they're hurting you because of that. A lot of people get abused for being Christians, for being social jerks. But if you know you're a social saint and you're reproached for the name of Christ, it should come into you like a blessing. This is, this is a source of not unusual, you fully expect it. It's a cause of rejoicing, both now and later. And that there's a, there's a glory. The, the proving of you found glory in you. And the Spirit of God resting on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or a wrongdoer, or a mischief maker. I like the range there. Murderer, thief, down to mischief maker. The word mischief maker actually has the word episkopos at the end of it. I forget what the first part of it is. The same word as bishop, but episkopos means uh, overseer. Um, and the word, the mischief maker, is overseeing somebody else's business. You know, you're, you're in somebody else's stuff. You're causing trouble being a mischief maker. I, I wrote down that, it caused my, First Thessalonians 4.11, where it tells you, mind your own affairs. Mischief-making people are in other people's business. But we're not supposed to suffer for that. In some ways, and we are talking a little bit about social action and all the rest, so Christians end up sometimes being mischief-makers, and they, you never see the apostles being mischief-makers. They're not out there playing tricks on the non-Christians. They're not challenging the non-Christians to this, that, or the other thing. They're being challenged to be good citizens, to work quietly with their hands, live peaceably with their neighbors, keep oneself unstained from the world, to be holy. 
because we want the spirit of glory and of God to rest on us. And we don't want to suffer unduly for things we've done wrong. And I think we need to really consider whether or not the church, in order to feel something alive, starts doing wrong things in the name of Christ or the gospel to get the bad response. Yet if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but under that name let him glorify God. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous man is scarcely saved, as is Proverbs, where will the impious and sinner appear? It's an odd comment. The time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. It looks like these things, this thing that's coming down, this disproving, that's what he said in verse 12, it's a proving judgment, not a punishment judgment, but deciding judgment. Some people who are going to get beat up, even non-Christians like to claim that, oh, they're just doing this because they're trying to keep, you know, the man's trying to keep me down, or, you know, it's, it's always this way, just because I live in a trailer park, or I, I was driving while black, or something. You know, they're always trying to claim that there was, uh, uh, you know, sometimes hear these cases where when the news report first comes across the wire, you might think, my gosh, the police were so brutal. I can't believe... And then you hear the story. Then you hear how much he flipped off the cops and he waved a gun at them and, and they tased him three or four times. You know, It's not always the cops don't always do the right thing, but we often don't realize that punishment is not just a punishment as it, it, it is a... It's a deciding judgment. But sometimes punishment or violence will fall on the the righteous, and they are to take it as a glory, and not a shame. Because in the long run, this is going back, this saying, where will the impious and sinner appear? That's saying, okay, if this is, being, if this is happening to decide where you are, are you the, only the kind that would be punished or hurt for righteousness? If you have the kind of life that the only thing they could hurt you for is being good. I mean, that's a, sort of the, the basic thing. The only thing they could hurt you for is being good. Because they can't find anything wrong about you. But they still want to hurt you. That's where you want to be. If that is the case, we know that the impious and the sinner are going to have it far worse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Simple. Do good and trust God. It's the same thought. This is back in arm yourselves with the same thoughts since Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourself to do good and entrust God, trust your soul to God. That's who I should fear rather than fearing man. That's how, when you look back at all the martyrs who have gone before us in the faith, who have walked to incredible deaths um, 
and saying you know noble things that you say, well, where did they get the scriptwriter for this stuff? Uh, um, one Christian woman I was reading in that book asked to nurse her child one last time before they killed her. They let her nurse her child. She got up and walked to her death. You know, just a, you get these amazing uh, speeches. You get amazing composure. They're once you entrust your soul to God, it's not this spitting, raging, shaking your fist because of the grave injustice. I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Okay, those are, he's telling the leadership of the church at this point. Tend the flock of God that is, in, that is your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Back before you get to the actual instructions, he says, I'm a fellow elder with you and a partaker in that glory that is to be revealed. Too many pastors, I made a little post on Facebook today of something I'd thought of this morning about why Christian unity is viewed as so hard, and I realized it ain't hard. It's just that the people in charge of churches are difficult people. They've all got their kingdoms. They've all got the solace they want in life is in the power they receive here. The following they get here. I know the temptation. I understand it. My heart goes out to them, but that's what keeps them from getting along with each other. Nobody can humbly let their own viewpoint just stand, just be, not insist. Um, they've they've lost. We've pa the pastorate has lost sight of the future glory because they're conscious of whatever utopia of spirituality, revival movement, whatever they're trying to do. That's what they're most concerned with. So they're less they're less moved by this looking forward. They, they sense the unrighteousness. We've had another major fall from grace this week um, in a major leader. Um, uh, Doug Phillips, what's his name? Doug Phillips, Freedom Vision, Vision Forum, Vision Forum. Uh, you know, he repented, but, you know, complete plowed in his life. Power Not being viewing, not viewing the next life, not realizing that that all of this is going to a judgment. This is a story. I, I can let this go. I can entrust to God only if I believe very vividly in the God and the event that is coming. You know, if I say, um, um, when it says, "Gird up your minds, be sober." Earlier in this book, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the coming of our Lord and Savior. That set your hope fully on that. And when people set their hope fully on what's happening here, it might not be stuff and, and money and, and pleasures, but it might be the kingdom here, not the kingdom there. They're already off the track a little bit. But then the three instructions are, 
It should be a willing service to the church. It should be not enticed, but eager. I shouldn't, in other words, my energy shouldn't come from the wage. And probably the worst one, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Show, don't tell. You know, um, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will obtain the unfading crown of glory. That's what you'll get if you do this. If, you know, um, says in Luke 22 here on the side, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, which they all like to be called. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. That's the example. Now the next verse, verse 5, Likewise, you that are younger, be subject to the elders. Oddly, the exhortation to the elders is skipped over by all the elders, and they jump right to the parishioner's instruction, and they let them know that you're supposed to subject yourselves to those who teach. But it doesn't tell the elders to tell the parishioners to be subject, tells the parishioners to be subject. And if, it, if the parishioner had read the previous or heard the previous admonition, he would say to himself, oh, my subjection to them is by example. You know, I, they are told not to be domineering over me, but to be an example to me. That's what I, my subjection is not in them telling me what to do. My subjection is, I should be looking to imitate their lives. The Hebrews passage that I have somewhere in here on the side of Hebrews 13, <coughs> remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. <coughs> you look at their example and then you imitate it. That's what you're told to do. So, even if a pastor said, you're supposed to be subject to the elders, say, yeah, but I'm supposed to be subject to elders who set me an example of Christ-likeness. And, matter of fact, your comment right there was kind of domineering. <laughs> and when you get that worked out, you let me know. Because, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. However it comes down, the prisoner should be going, yeah, I, I need to have someone to imitate. And I should be imitating someone who's like Christ. Imitate, Paul says that, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that should be the measure. That's a, there's a humble giving up of your own control of your life. That's how you should be learning the validity of the, you might say, the intellectual teaching of somebody is how the life is led. Um, the pastors are to be ones who serve. They're ones who are concentrating on their own participation in this narrative that Christ has laid out for us and the hope of glory and the reward of God for them. Unfading crown of glory and God not being opposed to them. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you. 
But what happens is we exalt ourselves be because we're impatient. Cast your, all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Now, it's a great little passage. Uh, one of those that can really be pulled out out of the bread loaf that sat on your parents' table with the scripture memory verses in it. If that could be one. But in this book, it hangs out there as a, a heady, dangerous piece of advice. It lets you know that in all of this, all this happening, that just is going absolutely, by anyone's measure of what a good life would be, this is not one. But it is one, and it is one in which you can say, he cares about me, and I can give him my anxieties. I'm being beaten. My family is being killed just because we believed in Jesus Christ. Christ cares about you. Christ cares about you not... You don't get to say, Christ cares about me only when everything turns out by earthly measure. Christ cares about you, period. What we are measuring, remember, we are under judgment here. We're being proved. It's coming on us to prove us whether or not we value righteousness. Do we value, when we say we have faith in God, have we entrusted him to judge the earth? Have we entrusted him to care for the future? Have we entrusted him to know what he's doing and to set this kind of example where his righteousness might have this kind of price? You know, it's a serious big boy affair. But the anxiety temptations that are there do have a recourse, like the Philippians passage that you can... Uh, It says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. We're not quite sure if it's the devil here, devil, qua devil, because it talks about your adversary, and that's not Satan, the word there is um, um, the opponent at law and your enemy and the word devil, the accuser, diabolos, uh, is, uh, could be a malevolent gossip, someone who's ratting you out, which could also be the devil. You know, uh, the translation devil is legitimate, the word is diabolos, but like diabolical. But uh, uh, it's also true that that's what was happening to them, is that they were getting turned in by people, like in the Soviet Union when people would rat people out. People were doing that to Christians all the time. Um, and uh, whoever it is, whether it's the state, whether it's a false accuser or the devil, you resist firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God does not... You know, these are people that were, some had already gone to their deaths and the writer of this letter was going to go to his death. It wasn't like, oh, it's always going to... The cavalry is always going to arrive just in time and get you out of this hard scrape. But we're not measuring this in terms of what this life rewards me in because my hope is set fully on the grace that is to be revealed, because I'm a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, 
Um, I know that this grace, this judgment is something I want to carry through to the end and to death. Because I fear him more than I fear them. By Sylvanus, which would be Silas, uh, Paul and Silas fame, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I would assume he's talking about what he just covered in four chapters. This is five chapters. This is this is the true grace. This is what we're about. We're about righteousness. We're about sharing with Christ what happens with righteousness in a wicked world. And we need to know how to believe and how to attend to this problem of not being suddenly applauded everywhere for being the best people on earth. You know, people with a real cheesy spirituality. Um, um, that's my quote today. Is, the Dalai Lama is not a vegetarian. He eats meat every other day. His quote was, I'm a Tibetan monk, not a vegetarian. <laughs> but, but what's his righteousness? What did the Tibetan monk Dalai Lama ever do? What kind of righteousness? Right? You have platitudes, you know, quotables, not even that quotable. Um, uh, all sorts of, th that's the kind of silly religious people we like and the kind of religious holiness we like that. Except, the world will accept that because it'll fit well on a Hallmark card. Um, but you start talking like Jesus and people get angry. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark, which is an interesting remark. Big <laughs> remark. Um, I sort of wonder if Mark was either his stepson or his actual son, John Mark, because when he gets let out of prison in, in um, Jerusalem back under Herod, when he was they killed James and they, they uh, put Peter in prison, um, the first place he goes is John Mark's mother's house. And then he leaves town. And we know he was married. So, so does my son. And she who is at Babylon probably is his wife. Um, or he may have had a son named Mark. I don't know. We don't have all the details. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all, all of you that are in Christ. Well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We are very grateful and thankful as we in the season of the season of thanks and that we would be regularly thankful that our country has not descended into abuse of those who believe in your son. But Lord, we know they're capable and they will do so without legal help. There are times when the apostles were not punished by Rome but just pushed and persecuted by the Jews. So Lord, we know it's always possible. We'd ask that we would stand fast in this, that we would learn what it is to be good citizens, servants, spouses, wherever we're up against the unbeliever, good in every regard regarding those relationships, and then holy. That we would be um, ready to accept any kind of abuse that comes to us for that holiness. Teach us these things what your son was like. In your son's name we pray. Amen.